This is Africa Digest. Good afternoon and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa from an African perspective. Broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa. You can find us on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi and I'm in studio with Nosekhle Zuma as well as Musibiri Makura. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Uganda's Bobby Wine has confirmed that his lawyers have filed a 41-page brief against President Yoweri Museveni. Zambia's health minister has been fired from his ministerial position over the supply of defective substandard condoms. And Cameroon says at least 21 people, including six troops, have died in two attacks by Boko Haram. Right now, though... Let's uh, get the show started. The time is 17.01 Central African Time. On a Monday afternoon, it is the 11th of January. Prominent Ugandan opposition politician and presidential contestant Bobby Wine has confirmed that his lawyers have filed a 41-page brief against President Yoweri Museveni and his security minister, Eli Tamwine, at the International Criminal Court in The Hague, Netherlands. Bobby Wine says he is optimistic that the brief will pave the way for the International Criminal Court to investigate Museveni and Tamwine for allegedly committing human rights abuses and allowing soldiers to the country's army and police to kill 54 people during campaign rallies that are taking place ahead of the presidential election this coming Thursday. James Shimanula reports. Already, Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni has announced officially that indeed 54 people were killed during violence that erupted at one of Bobby Wine's campaign rallies. Bobby Wine believes that Museveni's admission is enough evidence that can lead to investigation by the International Criminal Court. Speaking from the Ugandan capital Kampala, Bobby Wine alluded to the killing of his 54 supporters by military forces and police. We want General Museveni to face justice in his lifetime. It is on record that they were murdered. We have uh, petitioned the International Criminal Court. We want the International Criminal Court, when we succeed, to issue an arrest warrant to General Yoweri Kaguta Museveni and to his security minister, General Eritumine. We know the world is watching Uganda, and we have encouraged Ugandans to use their cameras to gather as much evidence. We already have enough evidence to indict General Museveni in the International Criminal Court. According to Bobby Wine, additional evidence is being gathered to strengthen a brief evidence that has already been submitted to the International Criminal Court. Speaking briefly about the evidence that is being gathered by Bobby Wine, Deputy Speaker of Uganda Parliament, Jacob Oulanya, said, By and large, most of these people are gathering evidence. No, that somebody is clear now in their mind that that person will defeat them in the elections. After a president is declared winner, a presidential candidate declared winner, the rules change. How do the rules change? The rules now say, if you are grieved by the results that has been declared by the Electoral Commission, you have the avenue to go to the Constitutional Court, which is the first court and the last court to hear that petition. As Oulanya spoke, ordinary Ugandans are reportedly living in fear following unconfirmed rumors that fighting may erupt if Bobby Wine fails to win the presidency. Reacting to the unconfirmed rumors, 
Adolf Mwesige, Uganda's defense minister, had this to say. I would like to take this opportunity to assure all Ugandans that your lives and property will be safe. It is the constitutional duty of government to ensure that your lives and property are protected. There has been an impression that, um, that there is a vacuum. So some people have been behaving as if uh, there is no government. Similarly, some of the radical youth groups are actively involved in intimidation and threatening behavior to discourage rival voters from participating in the elections. As the countdown continues to Thursday, the 14th of January, when a presidential election is to be held in Uganda, reports say journalists continue to be violently attacked by military and police as they cover opposition politicians, including Bobby Wine. Martin Okotho Chola, Uganda's Inspector General of Police, explains why it is unsafe for journalists to go to some places to cover opposition politicians. It is not that we are targeting the media. No, we are trying to protect your lives. We are telling you there's a danger there. For you insisting you must go where there's a danger. Yes, we shall beat you for your own sake to help you understand that don't go there. That was Martin Okothochola, Uganda's Inspector General of Police. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Zambia's health minister has been fired from his ministerial position rather, over the supply of defective substandard condoms, medicines and surgical gloves. Last week, the nation was informed that a company contract, contracted by the minister supplied not safe for use condoms and other products which erupted in a countrywide demand for action to be taken as Arthur Sikobo reports. It is an issue that has brought enough concerns from various sectors throughout the country. The talk has been that the Minister of Health had through a contracted company called Honeybee procured condoms, medicines and surgical gloves that were not safe and not fit for use. This matter came to the fore after a team of Ministry of Health technocrats led by Permanent Secretary Kakulubero Mulalelo appeared before Parliament during a routine appearance to check performance of each government entity. The team was quizzed by members of Parliament of the Public Accounts Committee or PAC on expenditures in which it was discovered that a US dollar 17 million contract to Honey Bee Pharmacy for supply of medical kits contained defective deliveries in the name of condoms, medicines and surgical gloves. Pressure then mounted from all angles demanding that the Minister of Health Chitalo Chirufia and all his controlling officers at the Minister of Health be fired for negligence and endangering lives of Zambians. Medical for Quality Healthcare in Zambia through Francis Kangwa, demanded that all officers involved in the matter be held accountable. They must be suspended immediately. It is unacceptable for the Minister of Health to distribute substandard drugs and other medical supplies to the public. We demand that all the officers involved must resign on moral grounds for failing the Zambian people. Sean Tembo of the opposition Patriots for Economic Progress asked Zambia's president Edgar Lungu to act on the matter urgently as it was a matter that involved people's lives. We expected the president to assure the nation that such a scandal will not repeat itself in his government, that all those involved in this scandal will be prosecuted. 
to the forest exchange of the law. Center for Reproductive Health, led by Amos Mwale, raised concerns on the possibility of an increase in diseases in the country as a result of the substandard products. Uh, you see, such negligence in other countries can actually result into legal action. This is a health issue. This is a very important issue. We are going to see a lot that is going to cost us more than what we have actually distributed. We will see an increase in pregnancy, we will see an increase in HIV infections, including the COVID that we are seeing. I think it's because of such commodities that have been distributed, that health workers have been given things that cannot be used properly, that they're getting infected and the end result that they're passing on. Minister in charge of health, who in actual fact flagged off the distribution of the said products to all parts of the country, on Sunday was then relieved of his duties. President of Zambia, Edgar Lungu, fired Chitalu Chilufia as Minister of Health without giving reasons. But the country could only speculate that the supply of defective and not for self-use condoms and others is the reason why the Minister of Health has been fired. The firing of Health Minister Chitalu Chilufia by Zambia's President has cheered many. Meanwhile, others are still calling for controlling officers such as the Permanent Secretary and Directors also to be investigated. As MKZ, we want to thank President for taking action over the Minister of Health uh, scandals by firing the Minister of Health to send a positive and a strong signals to all public service uh, workers who betray public trust. Transparency International through Maurice Nyambe has this. So we would like to uh, acknowledge um, uh, the President's decision and to welcome it with uh, open arms. We are hoping that it it will not be the only action that we see in response to this scandal. President Longo has since appointed a new Minister of Health in the name of Jonas Chanda and the ministerial position in which the new Minister of Health, Jonas Chanda, was occupying has been given to nominated member of parliament who championed a bill that was meant to change the constitution of Zambia, Mr. Rafael Nakachinda. Monday, the two ministers are being sworn in to start performing their new roles. Reporting for Channel Africa in Lusaka, Zambia, I am Arthur Davis, Skopo. The Zimbabwean government has, with immediate effect, immediate effect banned the movement and viewing of dead bodies in a bid to curb the spread of COVID-19. There are fears some people are dying of COVID-19, yet results only come out positive days after burial. Government is also concerned that the virus is being spread faster at funerals where COVID-19 laws are being disregarded in favor of customs and tradition. Simon Muchemo reports from Harare. Zimbabweans were on Sunday night stunned when government issued a ban of the movement and viewing of dead bodies forthwith in a bid to avert further COVID-19 infections. While the custom of moving dead bodies to other areas, not places of death, has been practiced for decades Nobody really knows when it started and if it is indeed African. Zimbabweans prefer burying their loved ones in their rural homes where their forefathers would have been buried, but the new creature called COVID-19 is ravaging. That government had to intervene. The new restriction, according to government officials, all deaths apart from those as a result of accidents will be treated as if they are COVID-19 cases. Some are already complaining this could increase stigmatization of COVID-19. A historian and professor of sociology, Claude Mararike, had this to say. There are new developments, traditions, and customs change depending on circumstances. And therefore, when authorities behave the way they have done, it is because of circumstances. Movement of bodies 
from point A to point B depends on circumstances. In Africa, it's not the bodies that matter when we bury people. It is the, the spirit of the dead which we move from point A to point B. They, they can burn the, the physical body, but that doesn't really stop the actual tradition of moving the spirit. According to Professor Mararike, movement of dead bodies is not a major thing in Africa, as what matters is the actual burying of the spirit of the dead. Even if someone dies and is buried in the UK, South Africa and USA, what matters is the spirit and not the dead body. This is in sharp contrast to the culture and tradition that has been practiced for decades and hard to follow. Professor Mararike added, Since biblical times, when you read in the Bible, people transporting the bones of Joseph from Egypt to wherever. It was not really the, the question of the bones. It's the question of the spirit of, of Joseph being moved from point from Egypt, from Egypt to wherever. Yes. And you know, even today, we have had people who died during the liberation struggle in the bush, and they, their bones may be buried there, but the spirit will come and be buried home. Body viewing, body viewing has never been a tradition among African people. The, the dead people, they, it has never been a tradition where people queue to see the, the face of a dead person. No, it, it's something new which came into Africa, in many parts of Africa, I think. I don't know when it started, but uh, I, I know many, many groups in Africa would forbid uh, people viewing a dead body. While a lot of people may feel oppressed and restricted by this new measure, Professor Maharike said the ban is not for the dead, but is to make sure those still living do not congregate in the name of a funeral. According to health experts, many people in Zimbabwe have been infected after having gathered for parties and funerals. What, what is being banned uh, are people who are gathered to bury the dead. And they, they don't want people to congregate because they can easily, easily transmit the virus. The virus doesn't move. It is the people who move the virus. They move the virus, yes. And we don't know scientifically whether all these things are correct or not correct. But there is a lot of debate on, on how <clears throat> the virus is transmitted. But there is a lot of debate over that issue. Uh, yeah, we don't know. But... Uh, I think there are a lot of things which we don't yet understand about the virus. In African traditions, there are other ways of explaining the virus. In Shona, we have Mamepo, or even, even, even behaving in a strange way. But we don't know what, it, what the cause could have been, Mamepo, and there are, there are ways of treating those, those kinds of things. That was Professor Mararike speaking from Harare. In Harare, Zimbabwe, for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. Cameroon says at least 21 people, including six troops, have died in two attacks by Boko Haram fighters on its northern border with Nigeria and separatists fighting to create an independent state in the Central African nation's western regions. Officials today are warning of a new wave of violence and killing they say is being prepared by the separatists and Boko Haram terrorists. Moki Kinzaga reports from Yaoundé. 
Midjiyawa Bakari, governor of Cameroon's far north region, says there was general confusion in the town of Mozogu when militiamen warned civilians about Boko Haram suicide bombers from neighboring Nigeria in their midst. He said some scared people fled into the bush where they always go for safety, but many Nigerian suicide bombers were already hiding there. He said 11 civilians were killed on the spot when bombers detonated explosives. He said three were shot by the terrorist group in Mozogu, a town in Cameroon's Mayosava administrative unit. Yesterday we got uh, an attack of Boko Haram in uh, Mayosava division. 14 people died and uh, we had been instructed by the hierarchy to extend a message of condolence and we condemn this act of Boko Haram and all measures will be taken with uh, our vigilant committee who was working day and night alongside our force to secure our population. Bakari said the wounded were rushed to hospitals in Mozoku and the neighboring town of Mokolo. He said the military had been deployed in Mozoku to secure Cameroon's northern border with Nigeria's Bono State, an epicenter of Boko Haram activity. Cameroon government spokesperson René Emmanuel Sadi in a release said heavily armed Boko Haram fighters have infiltrated villages around Mozogo and calls for vigilance. The release also says separatist fighters attacked a military post at Matazan at the western entrance to the English-speaking northwest region, killing four soldiers and two civilians. Two civilians died while being rushed to hospitals. Among the survivors of the attack is 43-year-old trader Clarence Tata, who was driving from the English-speaking northwestern town of Bamenda to the coastal city of Douala. He says God saved his life from more than half an hour of crossfire. I opened that door behind there and jumped out of the car. Then I rolled and came under the car. After the shooting lasted for around 30 to 40 minutes, I discovered that a bullet went through my chair and came out behind. God protected me. The Lord preserved me. General Valenka, commander of the Cameroon military forces fighting the separatists, says his troops transported several wounded people to hospitals. He says physical damage was enormous. Nka says civilians should help the military find the fighters by reporting suspects in their communities. Le travail n'est pas terminé. Il y a encore euh, des camps de terroristes à nettoyer, rencontrer les populations. He says the task ahead is still enormous because there are many rebel camps his troops must destroy. He says it is imperative for everyone to know that the military is there primarily to protect civilians. He says he is urging the population to collaborate with the military, which is doing everything possible to protect civilians and their goods and restore peace. Cameroon has been fighting to secure its northern border with Nigeria from Boko Haram incursions and combating separatist fighters in its English-speaking western regions. No one has claimed responsibility for the attacks in the northern town of Mozogu and the western locality of Matazan.
The government, however, blames Boko Haram and separatist fighters for the separate attacks. The separatist crisis that is in its fourth year has killed over 3,000 people and displaced more than 500,000 others, according to the United Nations. Boko Haram terrorists have been fighting for 11 years to create an Islamic caliphate in northeast Nigeria. The fighting has spread to Cameroon, Chad, Niger and Benin. The United Nations says Boko Haram violence has cost the lives of 30,000 people and displaced about 2 million in Nigeria, Cameroon, Niger and Chad. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé, Cameroon. With COVID-19 vaccines rolling out across many countries, the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, the IFRC, has reiterated that vaccines alone will not end the pandemic. The warning comes as global COVID-19 daily cases and deaths continue to rise. The Global Humanitarian Network says people need to remain vigilant and continue to adhere to basic preventative measures. To discuss this further, we're joined on the line from Geneva in Switzerland by Emmanuel Cabobianco, IFRC's Director of Health. Manuel, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Now, why does the IFRC see the need to remind people that vaccines alone will not end the global battle against COVID-19? Well, we, we are seeing vaccines being deployed uh, around the world, and this is very positive news. But the pace at which this is happening is very slow. For, for the great majority of, of people that are listening right now, we know that a vaccine against COVID will arrive several months probably from, uh, from now. So while we need to speed up, speed up and, and scale up the distribution of vaccines, we need to remind ourselves that the best way to prevent infection is really the individual behavior. Mm. It's uh, how we keep physical distancing, how we use masks, how we wash hands. That is the number one priority for the next few weeks and months to protect ourselves and our families. And Emmanuel, why do you think that people have somewhat forgotten the dangers of this virus and the actions that they need to take in order to protect themselves rather uh, and each other? Let's be honest, this has been going on for one year and and people are understandably uh, tired People receive the news of a vaccine with great, great joy. Uh, and so there is a, a, a tendency to, to, to relax. Now, this would be a mistake uh, because this is the moment where we need to be more vigilant. Let's remind everyone that right now we have the highest number of cases worldwide that we had had since January last year when this all started. We have more than 800,000 uh, cases per day, and we have the highest mortality every single day. Around 15,000 uh, uh, people die of this disease. And if you look at Africa, the, the number of cases have been increasing for the past 15 consecutive weeks, and the mm. number of deaths has been, have been increasing for the past consecutive five weeks. So we are still very much in the middle of, of this pandemic, and this is the moment to double down on preventive actions and not to relax. Now, Emmanuel, what would you say is the reason for the spike in infections and deaths that we are seeing right now? Well, the, the, the epidemic has not been controlled in many parts of, uh, of the world. And we are seeing the epidemics 
uh, moving very fast in many European countries. We see it in in the U.S. We see it in Mexico. We also see it in uh, in countries in Africa, like like uh, like South Africa. Uh, on uh, on one additional concern that we do have at the moment is the establishment of. Uh, some variants, some uh, viruses that have been mutated, and there is a, a variant in South Africa and a variant in, uh, in the UK uh, that seems to increase transmissibility. And we are seeing these variants all present also in other countries. This may be a factor uh, contributing. Um, the lowering of the protective measures by individuals, the lowering of the guard may contribute to that, and maybe the, the, the holiday seasons uh, could have contributed with the traveling and the people gathering together. And then, of course, there is a role to play by governments in putting in place or not putting in place those measures that are evidence-based and that can actually reduce the transmission in, uh, in communities. Are we expecting numbers to drop or are we expecting numbers to rise? And if so, why? I think what we are seeing right now is a, a negative trend in in many uh, places, and and as I mentioned before, in Africa we have seen uh, numbers rising for 15 consecutive weeks. In many European countries, we are seeing numbers going up. In uh, in the U.S. and Canada, numbers are going up. So in many places, uh, we have indications that. Uh, uh, the pandemic is not um, is not uh, controlled, and and so we can uh, expect more more cases. We have other countries that have been able to manage uh, their uh, cases very well. Uh, New Zealand, just just to mention one, uh, uh, Vietnam, to mention another, in which the cases have remained uh, low uh, throughout the pandemics. These points to the fact that you can actually every country can actually control. Uh, the, the epidemic, but it requires a, a concerted effort of individual practicing the, the right type of uh, protective uh, uh, behavior, physical distancing, masking, and hand washing, uh, first and foremost. Governments playing their part in uh, uh, taking those measures that are important to prevent the transmission, and then the vaccines coming in uh, more widely, more Fast, faster in uh, in uh, in all countries where the epidemic is still is still raging. With all this, we can control uh, eventually the epidemic in each and every country. And lastly, what is the International Federation of the Red Cross doing to help countries in Africa to respond to this pandemic? Well, we have been working uh, since the very beginning uh, with a, a network of millions of volunteers on on the ground. We are there. To, uh, to support uh, the, the detection of, of the cases in the community, uh, to support them the, during uh, the isolation, the quarantine, providing uh, also uh, support that is in kinds or cash support in many, many um, uh, countries. And we are very much out there uh, providing psychological support to the people that have been affected by, not only by the virus, but they the, the have an impact in, in, in the families. And there are many that are actually having uh, 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 huge psycho, psychological uh, um, problems uh, due to COVID-19. And then last, uh, we are very much uh, uh, pushing information, the right type of information uh, out, uh, um, certainly through, through radio and television, but our strength is really at the community level through uh, the millions of volunteers that are uh, all over uh, the African continent and um, beyond that. All right, Emmanuel, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much to you all. Bye-bye. Goodbye.
That was Emmanuel Capobianco, Director of Health at the IFRC, on the line to us from Geneva in Switzerland. I am an African. I owe my being to the hills and the valleys, the mountains and the glades, the rivers, the deserts, the trees, the flowers, the seas, and the ever-changing seasons that define the face of our native land. Masterclass Africa, where great minds connect. An explorative one-on-one talk show that seeks to tackle issues of leadership and consciousness on the African continent and around the world. Masterclass comes to you every Fridays, 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock Central African Time. Channel Africa, bringing you the African Perspective. the globe every second there's always a breaking story what we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people the government concurs with the views of the black economic empowerment council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on black economic empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at Netlec to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. We call upon church leaders to really cooperate with government. It is the church which can help us to stop this crisis. The church should not contribute to this crisis negatively. We are calling upon our church leaders to listen to our premiers, our mayors, and the president. Let's work together to reduce the spread of this uh, virus. South Africa, it is possible. We are here because unity of purpose is necessary. Channel Africa. Gateway to Africa is our entertaining and educational tourism, travel and business show. Join us every Wednesday at 10 hours Central African time as we explore the tourism landscape in Africa. Make a date with Gateway to Africa every Wednesday at 10 hours Central African time. The National Council Against Smoking has welcomed the decision by the South African government to appeal the Western Cape High Court judgment that the ban on the trade of tobacco and vaping products during the hard lockdown was unconstitutional. The purpose of the ban was to protect smokers from becoming seriously ill or dying from COVID-19 and to reduce the burden on the health system. The Cape High Court decided that the ban would not achieve these purposes. Dr. Yusuf Saluji, 
is with the NCAS and joins us on the line. Doctor, thank you very much for joining us. Good afternoon and thank you for inviting me on the show. Now, why are you of the view that this is a step in the right direction? You know, firstly, the purpose of the ban is we know from the science and the World Health Organization has said that if smokers get COVID-19, they're likely to become much sicker to require ICU beds, ventilation, and therefore not smoking will help prevent this. Now, that's the government's purpose, is to make sure that the fewer people who get seriously sick or die and to make sure that the demands in our health service, you know, I just read the papers and I see that hospitals are, are driving around looking for spare beds where they can take patients. So it really is to reduce the strain on the health service. And that's the reason why the government banned it. But of course, the Cape judgment was, in my mind, illogical. And is there any proof that smoking made things worse for smokers during this period of the pandemic? Yes. There's, there's been scientific... Look, firstly, as I say, the World Health Organization has assessed the evidence and come to the conclusion that smoking makes it more severe. It doesn't say that you will get COVID, but that if you smoke and you get COVID, you'll be more sick. That's very clear. There's also scientific evidence published in the scientific journals that show a relationship between smoking and COVID. All right. And uh, do you believe that the court failed to consider some serious and yes. life-threatening yes. issues when it made its judgment on this ban? Well, firstly, the court didn't consider the right to life. We have a right to life. And if COVID seriously endangers people's lives, then our right to life is being taken away. But I think the court trivialized the issue. The court didn't understand the science, in my opinion. And what I mean by that is one of the things the court said is that not being able to buy cigarettes and not being able to smoke will make people irritable. And being irritable is an infringement of their constitutional right to dignity. So what the court was actually saying is that we have a, a constitutional right not to be irritated. I mean, this is just ridiculous. It makes, it makes a mockery of our other constitutional rights. But more importantly, it's actually wrong. If you ask the majority of smokers, not everybody, but if you ask the majority of smokers, why do you smoke? They'll tell you it's because they're addicted to nicotine. That if they don't smoke, they become tense and irritable, etc., etc. Now, nowhere in the 156-page 150 judgment does the court even mention the word addiction. What they've done is taken British American Tobacco's version of the facts and simply accepted them. And they've discounted the government and the science. And I think that's the, that's the real issue with the judgment, is that it's misapplied and misunderstood the science. And lastly, do you think it would be wise for smokers during this pandemic to actually try and quit smoking? You know, I think the single best decision at any time for a smoker is to stop smoking. But during the COVID epidemic, it's particularly important. Let me just give you a very simple example. Many smokers find that they need to, they end up in hospital because they can't breathe, that they don't have enough oxygen in their blood, and that if the oxygen levels drop very low, they will need to be put on ventilators. Now, there's a poison in tobacco smoke, carbon monoxide. And that reduces the ability of the blood 
to carry oxygen and to deliver oxygen. So on average, smokers have between 5 and 10% of their blood is carrying this poison called carbon monoxide, which means that levels of oxygen in their blood are reduced. Literally, literally, if they stop smoking within 24 to 36 hours, the carbon monoxide is expelled from their blood and they'll be able to breathe more easily. That's also the damage to the lungs, etc. So it's especially important for smokers to stop smoking during the COVID epidemic, but as a, life, as a lifelong choice, it's important for them to stop smoking. All right, doctor, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And that's Dr. Yusuf Saluji. He's with South Africa's National Council Against Smoking. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on internet and satellite. From an African perspective. Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French and English, giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandalunye Nzovo and you are listening to Channel Africa. We are Channel Africa from an African perspective. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. The Indian Ocean Archipelago of Seychelles has become the first African nation to start vaccinations against COVID-19. The country's president, Wavel Ramkwalan, was the first to receive the jab, an event broadcast on live television at a hospital in the capital, Victoria. The country is using the vaccine developed by the Chinese pharmaceutical giant Sinopharm with its subsidiary, the China National Biotech Group. More than a 1,000 people are to be vaccinated every day. For more on this, Channel Africa spoke to Mike, Michelle Peer, uh, Chief Executive Officer of the Citizen Engagement uh, Platform in Seychelles, otherwise known as KEPS, the Platform for Civil Society in Seychelles. You know, we were enjoying the peaceful life in Seychelles with uh, only a few active cases. But, you know, there has been some community transmission lately um, during the last week of the, of the year. And um, during a visit that the president, the new president, went to the UAE, he, he got a sponsorship of 50,000 um, vaccine. And uh, he said that if there's any, any emergency arising, so anytime we'll be using. But unfortunately, the last week of December, we have this community transmission and we we, we speed up the rate of the reaction to get the, the final uh, documentation about the, the vaccine. And we started to roll out this vaccine on Sunday, yesterday, um, starting with the political leaders, um, following by the healthcare workers, the frontliners. And we we, we vaccinated about 100 and 100 and 20 um, people yesterday and we are planning to vaccinate about 25,000 people in Seychelles that will be a quarter uh, of the population and then there will be new new vaccine coming in from uh, a different laboratory different uh, um, different institution um, so that the rest of the population can be vaccinated but the campaign is ongoing it's uh, the media is uh, very active uh, 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 about the campaign um, they are telling people about the different information about the comp- about the, the vaccine, um, who will be taking it at first, what are the target good population, which will be the priority, 
and then uh, going on to the rest of the population. There are a lot of uh, discussion about this vaccine, and since this this vaccine, Sinopharm, has not been approved yet by WHO, a lot of people are asking questions about it, and uh, there are different opinions about uh, the, this vaccination campaign. But, you know, Seychelles, uh, what we've been told by the health uh, professional is that we are in an emergency situation, and the local authority and the government has the right to to approve this medicine if if if, if not approved by WHO we have the uh, the right to approve it because it is an emergency situation now the president was among the first people to receive the shots on sunday uh, this must have encouraged more people to come forward and get vaccinated because he led by example isn't it yes yes the president was the first to take it and and uh, the second one was the former president, uh, President Ford, and then followed by the different uh, the cabinet of ministers, the members of parliament. Um, even I saw the chief justice uh, taking it. Uh, you know, um, yes, the president is leading by example and he is encouraging people to take it because, you know, Seychelles, we are a very small economy and we, we depend on, on tourism. And uh, if we do not have this herd immunity against COVID-19 in our country, uh, we'll might as well close the border and no, the economy will, will be flat on its face, you know. You mentioned that the country is expecting another donation of more doses of the vaccine. By when is the country expected to get this donation? Uh, according to the Ministry of, uh, of Health, the donation will be coming in very soon, about two weeks, three weeks onwards. It will be in the country. And then the population will be will be getting access to to, to standard vaccination. But for this one, we have twenty fifty thousand. It will be it will be only twenty five thousand because we need to take two dosage of the of the vaccine for it to be effective. But orders will be coming shortly, two weeks time, three weeks times in the country. And that's Michel Pierre, uh, chief executive officer of the Citizen Engagement Platform Seychelles, talking to. Channel Africa's Kumbero Munjelele. At least least six rangers have been ambushed and killed on Sunday by armed men in Virunga National Park in the Democratic Republic of Congo's eastern province of North Kivu. The oldest national park, which is home to rare mountain gorillas, has become a site of persistent unrest as different armed groups battle for control of oil and other rich minerals it has. Jean-Nobamweze reports from Kinshasa. The ranchers have found themselves in an ambush in the morning at Nyamitwitwi in the Nyamirima village around their camp in the far end of the national park. The Congolese Institute for the Conservation of Nature, ICCN Park Rangers, were patrolling when a group of unidentified armed people opened fire on them, killing at least six and leaving two others seriously wounded. The ICCN has denounced the repeated attacks against the park rangers in order to loot the country's natural resources, including gorillas, oil, and different minerals. Oliver Mukesha is the Congolese Institute for the Conservation of Nature spokesperson. We regret to confirm the attack. 
the attackers, a heavily armed group, have come and attacked our routine patrol in the region. We have lost the six rangers and others are wounded. We condemn these repeated attacks against the rangers in the Virunga National Park. This park is a UNESCO World Heritage Site due to its mountain gorillas that's a very rare kind. The park is guarded by 689 armed rangers, at least 200 of whom have been killed in the line of duty over the past decade. 16 of them were killed in April last year by a still unidentified group. Different armed groups, including locals such as Mai Mai and foreign such as the Ugandan Allied Democratic Forces, ADF, are operating in the area. This makes it very difficult for the Congolese Institute for the Conservation of Nature to clearly identify the attackers, according to Oliver Mkeshia, the ICCN spokesperson. At this time, we have nothing to say about the attacker's identity. But what's true is that the attack occurred in a region with high activity of armed groups. The Virunga National Park was created in 1925 and covers more than 7,000 square kilometers. About a quarter of the world critically endangered population of mountain gorillas are in this park. Jean Noel Bamoise for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. And now for your economics news, here's Nosisha Zuma. Thank you, Samora. Good evening. The World Bank on Monday said it would invest over five billion US dollars over the next five years to help restore degraded landscapes, improve agricultural productivity, and promote livelihoods in eleven African countries as they recover from the COVID nineteen pandemic. World Bank Group President David Malpass said the investment would help improve livelihoods as those countries recovered from COVID nineteen and dealt with the impact of biodiversity loss and climate change. In a statement, the bank said the funds would benefit countries in the Sahel region, Lake Chad and Horn of Africa. A contractor to state-owned diamond miner Alexico, Gavin Graythorn, has told the State Capture Mission Commission of South Africa in Johannesburg that there was a deliberate attempt to hide the true value of the marine diamond assets that Alexico possessed in order to move the company into coal mining. He told the, commun- the commission that the exit plan from diamond mining was given traction by former public enterprises Minister Malusi Gikaba through the emerging black coal miner exit strategy. He says the plan resulted in the stripping of some of the assets belonging to Alexico and misrepresentation to Parliament. The dynamics of a primary board and executive team that is conflicted by a Gupta Gigaba coal agenda and a PSJV board and executive team that is conflicted by a Transhex Quesco diamond agenda has resulted in the decimation of the local economy dilapidated critical infrastructure and a loss of social cohesion. It has also deprived Alex Gore and the Richtersfeld community of its share in what could and should be a lucrative diamond industry. 
India's Supreme Court has criticized the government for failing to break to break a deadlock with farmers protesting against reforms of the agricultural sector. Tens of thousands of farmers have been camped on the outskirts of the capital New Delhi for more than a month. Protesters are marching against what they see as laws benefiting large private buyers at the expense of producers. Chief Justice Sharad Avin in a hearing on Monday said the government must pause the legislation while farmers' concerns are heard. He also said the court would pass orders if the two sides remained at an impasse. The government of Prime Minister Narendra Modi says the legislation is aimed at modernizing an antiquated agricultural system which suffers from colossal wastage and bottlenecks in the supply chain. On Monday, the Hilton Durban Hotel in the Guzulu Natal province, South Africa, officially closed its doors temporarily. The iconic uh, hotel brand and building that became an integral part of Durban's skyline suffered a tremendous setback due to the coronavirus pandemic and the subsequent lockdown. This comes as the tourism sector throughout the country has been under much strain since the start of the pandemic. The Hilton Group decided to close down more than a thousand of its hotels around the world due to a report steep decline in revenue brought on by the coronavirus pandemic. Senior journalist for MoneyWeb, Soren Naidu, explains. That uh, Hilton Durban is the latest uh, hotel to be affected by the second wave of the COVID-19 pandemic and restrictions in South Africa. However, on the hotel's website, uh, there isn't booking available from uh, next, uh, from t- as of today, it's unclear when the hotel will reopen, but uh, considering its location, it's uh, clearly most likely going to be a temporary closure. Being a business hotel close to the Durban ICC, and for your financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 377.84 Nigerian Naira, 1076 Botswana Bula, 109.00 Kenyan Shilling, and 21.19 Zambian Kwacha, 15.28 Namibian Dollar, and 755.24 Malawian Kwacha in BRICS currencies. One U.S. dollar is trading at 541 Brazilian Roll, 75.45 Russian Ruble, at 73.25 Indian Rupees, 6.47 Chinese Yuan, and at 15.28 South African Rands. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 73 pence to the British pound and 81 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at $1,831 and platinum at $1,034 per ounce. Once, while Brent crude oil is at $55.20 a barrel. For Channel Africa, I'm Nosiche Zuma. And now it's time for your latest sporting news. Here's Mosubudi Makura.
Good evening, sports fans. South Africa's Minister of Sports, Arts and Culture, Natim Tatwa, has sent his condolences to the family of the first chief executive officer of the country's premier soccer league, Trevor Phillips. Now, Phillips' passing was confirmed by the PSL in a statement earlier today. Phillips held office for two and a half years from the PSL's inception, nearly 25 years ago, before returning for a second spell in 2002, which spanned five years until 2007. Phillips is credited as one of the people who played a crucial role in ensuring that the league found its footing and appeal to sponsors. Mtetwa spokesperson is Masichaba Kumalo. Minister Natim Tetwa has learned with great sadness of the passing of the founding CEO of the PSL, Mr. Trevor Phillips, who was popularly known as the British Bulldog. He's also credited as the brain behind the commercialization of the PSL. And we know that he paved the way for the league to be recognized as the richest league on the African continent and among the top 10 richest leagues in the world. The minister has said that Phillips left an indelible mark in the history of South African football and will always be remembered for his colossal contribution to the game. Our heartfelt sympathy go to his family, friends and the football fraternity at large. Meanwhile, the PSL will observe a moment of silence ahead of this week's DSTV Premiership and Lad Africa Championship fixtures in respect of Phillips. Athletics Kenya Relay Series kicked off this past weekend at the Nile National Stadium with the first leg with two other legs as well as the national trials lineup ahead of May's World Relay Championships in Poland. Now the second and the third trials are scheduled for the 23rd of January and the 6th of February respectively before the culmination on the 26th of March that will see a national team selected to represent Kenya at the Global Championship. Now the event in reference or rather is reference to the COVID-19 protocols as guided by the ministries of sports and health retired major general jackson tawe who's the president of athletics kenya acknowledged the difficulties they've had to face to adhere to these restrictions with the guidelines but of course there are challenges there's a lot of um, uh, education to be done uh, and there's a lot of inspection to be conducted because, because you see remember that the marshals must write a report on each event or each, each championship on to cricket news, Cricket South Africa's women's national side have a sad dormant for more than 10 months, but that's all going to change on the 20th of January when they play against Pakistan women in the first one-day international at Hollywood Beds Kingsmead Cricket Ground in South Africa's um, coastal city of Durban. Now, the Momentum Proteus will uh, be flying the flag in a post-COVID-19 world as they take on a Pakistani side that will be competing for the first time since the ICC T20 Women's World Cricket Cup in uh, three ODIs and three T20 internationals. Proteus head coach is a Hilton Moreng and he has emphasized the importance of returning to competitive cricket. Call it a new norm for us. It's what's most important is for us to make sure we can get an opportunity to play cricket. I mean, it's been almost a year now since the last time we played cricket as a team. So we had a lot of camps building up to this five to be exact. And then we knew that uh, with this new bio, bio bubbles and what needs to happen, the regulations of COVID, it, uh, we needed to educate players slowly so that when we do get an opportunity like we have now to have a tour, each and everyone had, had an experience of what the, uh, the environment is going to require from everyone. That's why the last uh, three days have been very good. I mean, players have worked extremely hard. And then we could be happy to say that everyone that has been here has uh, shown good form and, and at the back of a successful WSL. 
and those that have played in different leagues you know, in the last uh, three months also. We have each and every one other than those that has been mentioned with uh, injuries. But for us, so far as a team, preparation is on track and very happy. Meanwhile, Namibia's women's cricket side series against Zimbabwe, which was due to take place in Windhoek from the 22nd of January up until the 3rd of February, has been postponed due to COVID-19. Now, according to Namibia Cricket, the postponement comes as a result of the current national lockdown currently underway in Zimbabwe due to the escalated numbers of COVID-19 cases. Namibia and Zimbabwe were due to play five T20 internationals as well as two one-day internationals. And finally, Trump National in Bedminster has been stripped of the U.S. PGA Championship in 2022 as its organizers felt using the course as host would be detrimental. The PGA of America voted to terminate the agreement this past Sunday. Now, U.S. President Donald Trump, who owns the course, has been accused by the Democrats and some Republicans of encouraging last Wednesday's right in Congress. A representative of the Trump organization said they were incredibly disappointed with the decision. The course in New Jersey, one of 17 courses around the world owned by Donald Trump, was due to host a major in May 2022. And those are your sports news at the Sawa. This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up this hour of Africa Digest. Be sure to join us again from 1900 hours Central African time for more news from an African perspective. Right now, though, taking us to the top of the hour is Weeping by Vusi Mashasela. We'll see you later. the f-
face 